0: My welcome to Frank's from the beginning of the service. We're so glad that you're here. And uh, we want you to come again and we want you to bring a friend. So that's that's your assignment for next time. Come again and bring a friend. I wonder if any of you use paper calendars anymore. Use a paper calendar? I use the calendar on my computer, on my phone, it's helpful. But it's not as visually stimulating as a calendar on the wall. And uh, maybe I'm just old school, but I I need a calendar on the wall. And particularly when I'm thinking about planning out not only my own life, but your life in terms of the life of this church for the rest of the year and so on, I need to see the calendar. And so sometime last year, I started printing out the months of the year on an A4 sheets, and I started posting them up in my study And um, yeah, so each day of each month was represented by uh, a square, a blank square with a number up in the upper right-hand corner. And so I began to map out. I put up maybe six to nine months of, of the year up there. And as I went through the year, as I went through every week, I would walk up to the calendar and I would take a red pen and I would put a line through that day. It was done, and the next day was coming. Well, it really helped me to stay organized, at least somewhat, and pretty soon, at least this past week, I ran out of the calendars that I had put up last year, and so it was time for new, fresh calendars. I got kind of excited about that, and um, so I printed out actually 15, 15 months of calendars, and I put them up on the wall, and I inked in every date on every single calendar so that I could see it from way across the room. I need that at least. could see it from across the room. But I didn't have anything else up on those days of the year. The only, the only month that had anything in it that was up on the wall was April. April is almost gone. And so April has a lot of red lines through the squares. And then I sat down, and because I've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes in preparation of teaching it for you, I got philosophical. And I started looking up at all those empty days. And I thought, I wonder what's going to happen in those days. Some of those days are going to be good days. Some of those days are going to be bad days. Some of those days I'm going to get good news. Some of those days I'm going to get bad news. I mean, for all I know, actually, I don't even know if I'm going to make it to June 2020, which is the last month I put up there. I don't know if people in my family are going to make it to June 2020. All those empty squares up on the wall, knowing that each one is going to get a red line through it, and when each month gets filled up, I'll take it down from the wall and I'll stick it in the closet like I have done with all the other calendars. And that's kind of life, isn't it? The days come and go, the weeks come and go, the months, the years come and go. There's a lot that's the same about life over and over and over again. There's not much that's new. And when you think about it, there's other things like that in our lives as well. Do you have a drawer in your house or maybe a spot where you put all your old electronics How about that phone that you got that was new back in 2008? You remember that one, right? No, you don't. No, you don't. It it might be buried in that drawer somewhere, like it is in my drawer. I have those phones for some reason. I haven't gotten rid of them. And all those cords, you know, cords and cables that, like for my Palm Pilot? Okay, only the older people laughed. Yes, I, I had a Palm Pilot that was like the predecessor to, it was a caveman version of an iPhone. All those, all those things that one, at one point in time, when I unboxed them, I was so excited, they did new things for me, but now they, they don't even work, most of them. That's kind of like life too. There's not really much new. Everything that you think is new right now, is it's not really new. It's going to be old soon. Is this all there is to life, repetition and new things becoming old things? That's kind of the question that the author of Ecclesiastes wants to answer for us. Is that all there is to life? If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's in the Old Testament. It's probably not a book that you read recently. You thought to yourself, hey, I think I'll read Ecclesiastes. I need a real pick-me-up. And if you did think that, you maybe read through the first chapter and you decided, hmm, I think I'll read Romans. (laughs) Turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's after Proverbs After Psalms, after Proverbs, and then there's Ecclesiastes. Don't go any further. There's Song of Solomon. One day we'll get to that one. (laughs) Ecclesiastes is a book in the Old Testament, and it is considered to be a part of what we call wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Last week, I preached on the resurrection of Jesus, and Jesus said that the whole Bible was about Him, and He talked about the Bible in terms of Uh, the books of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And when Jesus spoke of the Psalms, He was speaking of this whole category of wisdom literature. So He really meant Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. He meant all of them together. So Jesus was saying all of these books are about Him as well. And we're going to find out how as we study through it. Wisdom literature addresses the question how are we supposed to live life well in God's world? How do we live well? How do we master life in God's creation? And so, wisdom literature considers just about every topic in life it considers suffering and death, it considers youth and old age, joy and sadness, failure and success. Wealth and poverty, family, friends, even enemies, sex and romance and attraction, and wisdom and foolishness for sure. Wisdom literature touches on just about everything that we might experience in life, but it does so by oftentimes stating general principles, general principles principles, and sometimes those principles can actually seem to contradict one another if you're reading through a lot of the lu- uh, wisdom literature at one time. But you know what? That's something that's true about general principles. They're just general. They're not specific to every, each and every situation. They have to be applied rightly. And so as we go through life, thinking and acting wisely in any given situation might look different from time to time. And there might be different factors that go into what's wise for one situation versus what's wise for another situation. And one person might be in what's a similar situation, and they should act differently based on wisdom than another person that's in a similar situation. It just depends. So when you're reading wisdom literature, you can expect that oftentimes you'll read those same verses that seem to say opposite things from one another, and you're certainly going to encounter that in the book of Ecclesiastes. So get ready for it. Now remember, they both can be true depending on the context and the situation where they're applied. Now Ecclesiastes is one of those books that's going to throw up some verses that confuse us and befuddle us, And that's a part of what Ecclesiastes is trying to do. That's a part of the purpose of the author when he wrote it. The way he wrote it, he wanted to actually make you feel a little bit confused, turned around, upside down, like you were chasing your tail, if you had a tail. You know, these days, when you go to museums, oftentimes the exhibits that you go through are meant to have you experience something, not just learn data or facts. And so... In my hometown, Memphis, Tennessee, there is a museum there that's uh, dedicated to the civil rights era in the United States. That was a period of time when um, predominantly African-Americans who were being discriminated against in my country by law, the laws were discriminatory against them, they were fighting for equal rights. And the Civil Rights Museum celebrates that time and the accomplishments of the civil rights movement. And one of the events that, of that era that brought about change was the arrest of a woman named Rosa Parks, no relationship to me. Rosa was an African American. And um, as an African American, she was supposed to sit in the back of the bus if she was riding on a public bus, because that was the place where African Americans were supposed to sit. You could not sit in the front if you were an African American. That's just the way it was. It's not right, but that's the way it was. And so, one day, Rosa Parks refused to sit in the back of the bus, and she was arrested for it. And that event set off lots of other events in the Civil Rights Movement. And so, in the Civil Rights Museum, inside the building, they actually have a public city bus from that particular era. And so, you can go, and you can see what that bus is like, and then you can get up onto that bus and sit on the bus. on the different seats throughout that bus are these figures of people dressed in clothing like they would have from that era, some of them white, some of them African American. And you sit down and then all of a sudden you hear a recording of a white bus driver angrily telling black people to move to the back of the bus. And the bottom of your seat vibrates when he bangs his stick against his chair and says, move to the back of the bus, move to the back of the bus. And of course, so that whole exhibit is meant to make you feel the experience that Rosa Parks felt in in some little small way. Well, that's what the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to do. He wants you to feel that life is a frustrating mystery. And so if you're reading Ecclesiastes and you're feeling that, it's working. It's working the way it should. Ecclesiastes is about the frustrating, repetitive mystery of life. The author doesn't want to just tell you that. He wants you to experience it. He wants you to feel frustration as you read him count and recount the difficulties of life and the frustrations that we face day in and day out and year in and year out. He wants you to to feel that feeling of having the Rubik's Cube in your hand and you don't know how to solve it and you just keep twisting and twisting and twisting and twisting and none of the sides ever line up with the same color. (laughs) My apologies to those of you who can solve it. But the author of Ecclesiastes, we should learn about him as well. He isn't identified by name, but the author attributes his material to a king of Israel who really best fits the profile of King Solomon. It says in verse 1 of chapter 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Okay, so that's the word of the author. And then we're going to hear him recount in first person the words of the king and the thoughts of the king and the ideas of the king. He's also called the preacher, as you can see. So, I might call him the preacher king throughout. It's a debated issue who actually is this king. Many agree that Solomon makes the most sense, though in chapter 2, the king says that he surpassed all who were before him in Jerusalem. And for Solomon, that would have only been two kings, Saul, who was short-lived, and David, who was probably the greatest king other than Solomon. So, Not really sure if it was Solomon bragging about how great he was compared to his dad, David. Still, at least Solomon was the son of David, and he became king of Israel. And the Scripture notes both his great wisdom and his great wealth. And Israel experienced incredible peace and general contentment, at least in terms of not fighting with their enemies on their borders. In fact, their borders were never as large For Israel, as they were during the reign of Solomon. It was as good as it got. So the profile fits Solomon, if not a little bit awkwardly. Lastly, I wanna encourage you to not just read through the passages beforehand as we come to them every week. Now that's good. If that's all you can do, that's good. But I wanna encourage you to go ahead and read the whole book. Read the whole book, it's gonna take you about 30 minutes. And if you want to, you can read it with a friend for accountability. Just switch back and forth, one chapter, one chapter, one chapter, one chapter. And it might help you if you both look at this insert that was in your bulletin, which is basically an overview graphically of the book of Ecclesiastes. I encourage you to look at that. It's really helpful. It's like being told about the roadmap for where you're going to go on a very long trip. And then at each stop along the way, you kind of know where you are in the journey. That's what it'll be like. It'll help you if you look through it. And it's especially helpful for those of you who like comic books. In addition to that, uh, in your bulletin, you might note on the second sermon notes page, at the bottom there, I have some questions for discussion. So if you go out to dinner this evening or you're gathered together with other friends from church who maybe heard the sermon, here's some good questions to ask. Just three questions here, four questions, excuse me, that would maybe help you discuss some of the things that you learned, get you into a deeper discussion about Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes certainly deserves to be discussed. So I mentioned just earlier what the big idea of the whole book was, One commentator summarizes the big idea of the book like this. Fear God in order to turn a vain, empty life into a meaningful life which enjoys God's gifts. Okay, that's the whole book, not just our passage this morning. The way I might word it would be this. A meaningful life is only found in fearing God and enjoying His good gifts. And you know what? That message... Loud and clear is exactly where Ecclesiastes ends. It's especially at the end of the book. The author and the preacher, though, they start out in a much more dark and discouraging place. And, of course, that's where we have to start if we're going to start at the beginning. So, if you got your finger there at Ecclesiastes, follow along with me as I read chapters 1 and 2. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? Eh, It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom. Surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. And so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, And the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And so I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head. But the fool walks in darkness, and yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. And so I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, and yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. And so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair, is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner... He has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't want our study of your word to be vanity or striving after the wind. And In order for it not to be so, we need you to illuminate your word and give us the gift of wisdom, give us the gift of understanding that we might obey you and please you for all of our lives. In Christ's name, amen. My sermon this afternoon has three points. The first point is that life is a frustrating mystery. It's vanity. Did you hear that word over and over again in the passage? Life is a frustrating mystery, and that's verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1. The preacher looks around in creation, and he sees that life is vanity. Five times he uses that word that's translated vanity in that verse number 2. Five times, and he'll use it 33 more times throughout the entire book. So it's a major theme. And it is actually a much debated word. It's not the first debated thing in this book, and it won't be the last. The Old Testament, of course, is written originally in Hebrew. The, Old, the New Testament, did I say the Old Testament? The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. And this word vanity, translated in most of your translations, some of your translations might have the word meaningless, which is actually Not as good of a translation, I think, as vanity, even. But that word in Hebrew is hevel, H-E-V-E-L, transliterated. And it actually seems to have some nuanced, different meanings throughout the book. But one thing that we do see is that when we want to find out what a particular word really means, We begin by looking at other places in the Old Testament. The closer to that passage, the more instructive it'll be. And so we can find that word hevel, actually, in the Old Testament wisdom literature. And there, oftentimes, it's translated as breath or mist or a vapor. So, for example, in Psalm 39, 5 through 6, it says, Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. So breath and nothing in those verses is the word hevel. Breath and nothing. So it, it's, it's like something that you can't get your hands on. You can see it for a little while, but then it's gone. You know, it, it, it's, it's like giving someone a, a bag from the grocery store and saying, okay, it's foggy out there today. Why don't you go out and, and get some fog and put it in the bag? Yeah, I mean, you, you just can't do that, can you? Or consider Psalm 144, verses 3 and 4. O Lord, what is man that you regard him or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. So it's It's like when you're in a cold place, not the UAE, when you're in a cold place and you step outside and you breathe and you can see your breath, you know, you you see it, but if you try to reach up and grab it, you're not going to capture any of it. It's gone. It's gone in a moment. Or consider a place where hevel is actually translated as vanity in your Bible. Another place, that's in Proverbs 31. Verse 30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. Hevel, it's vain. It lies to you. It says, I'm here, and then it's gone. That's beauty. But then Hevel can also have the idea that's a little bit more substantive, that is a frustrating mystery. Or you might use fancier words for it if you know those words, like an enigma or a paradox. Those are good words to know, by the way. You can look those up. Enigma, paradox, frustrating mystery. Not something entirely meaningless, but something that you can't seem to ever get to the bottom of. And that actually fits very well for the entire book of Ecclesiastes, even though we might read it with slightly different meanings in different places in the book. That's a good way to think of it, at least to start out. And so with that in mind, consider again that dark and bleak message in verses 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And he goes on to say, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Of course, toil is work. Under the sun is also a phrase that the author of Ecclesiastes, is going to use often with us, under the sun, it means life in God's world. He's saying, this is what life is like on the earth. Life under the sun seems to come and go, but always stay the same. You know, it's like that saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Have you heard that before? The more things change, the more they stay the same. Things seem to work in cycles. Okay, your last boss was not very good, and he moves on, and you get a new boss, and he seems really good at first, at first. And then things stay the same. Or maybe you get a good one. Well, the preacher sees that ever-changing sameness which seems contradictory, in the sun going down and rising again to the same place. And he sees it in the wind blowing around and around and around, never going anywhere particularly different. And he sees it in the way that streams seem to always be flowing to the sea, but the sea doesn't overflow. How does that work? I know, I know. If you're a science teacher, you know how it works. But that's what it looks like. A never-ending cycle, always changing, but actually always the same. And the preacher sees the same thing in the endless ways that our senses take things in. For example, the eye is never satisfied. We want to see more. We want to see more. The ear wants to hear more. And the mouth continues to utter things to the point of weariness. There is nothing that's really new. Nothing new. He says in verse 10, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it's already been, excuse me, it has been already in the ages before us, he's saying. No, it's not really new, he says. History and the junk in your junk drawer are full of things that were once advertised as new and improved, will radically change your life. And now, of course, they're in your junk drawer. Our lives are filled with things that we do over and over and over again, and we don't even really think about it. You know, the average person lives to be almost 80 years old. You and I, let's assume we're average. I know many of you are above average, but if we're average, you and I will spend 26 years sleeping. 26 years of your life will be spent sleeping, and seven years you'll spend trying to get to sleep. You're going to spend 13 years at work. I know some of you are thinking, no, me, 30. I'm just going to spend 30 years at work the way I have to work. 11 years looking at screens, four and a half years eating, three years on holiday, not nearly enough, and only a little more than one year exercising. That's a relief, isn't it? And what about the obscure getting ready to go out? Well, the women are going to spend 136 full days getting ready to go out. The men are going to spend 46. And then verse 11 reminds us that no matter how important you think you are, you and I will be forgotten. Even the most famous, the most infamous are going to be swallowed up into the black hole of history. And so in verses 1 through 11, the preacher in Ecclesiastes is taking a shot at our inability to actually master life, to rise above the repetitiveness of life, and how we just, he's pointing out how we just can't seem to control our lives or create any kind of significance that we crave deep down inside. We want to be significant. We want to think that we have some kind of permanence, but we don't, he says. You know, if you're not a Christian, you might have come to church today thinking that, hey, well, maybe at least the preacher will inspire inspire me with an encouraging story. Maybe not. We're in Ecclesiastes. But you know what? I'm telling you something very, very important. I'm telling you the truth. I'm really only telling you the truth that the preacher king of Ecclesiastes wants to tell you. His conclusions about life being a frustrating mystery, they actually beg us to ask questions. And we start sometimes with the simple questions like, why is it that Sheikh Zayed Road is always backed up when I'm running late? Or why is it that my line, the line I choose in the grocery store, always moves slowest? But you know, there's even deeper, tougher questions that touch us At the core of our being. Like, why do I feel down sometimes when I can't even really think of why? Or or why do people that you know and love die young or suffer from debilitating long-term illnesses? While there's dictators and despots that live in prosperity to a ripe old age. Why is that? How much control do you really have over whether or not your job is secure? or what your health is going to be like next week? What's going to happen to the money that you have in the bank, if you have any in the bank? Whether you'll be able to have children if you want them, or what's going to happen to the children that you do have? What are they going to turn out like? When I graduated from university, I wrote down some of my goals in life. It was like an a 4 sheet of paper. There were work goals, there were ministry goals, there were family goals. It was my plan for life. And you know, I suppose it wasn't bad in one sense to do that. It was helpful. Uh, but I actually thought that after ticking off several of my lifetime to-do items on that list, that I was actually in control of things, I actually thought, "Hey, I'm getting it done." And then things changed, and the company that I aspired to be the leader of actually turned out to be not kind of the kind of company that I wanted to lead. I didn't want to be there anymore, so what do you do then? And One goal after another goal began to not really fit for the rest of my life, the twists and turns it was taking, or maybe not even be possible. And as I look back at the list, I realized that there was actually very little on that list that I control, could control. In fact, maybe actually none of it, to be honest. <laughs> I, c- I couldn't really make it happen despite all the titles of all the self-help books at the bookstore. And so somewhere along the way, I lost that list. I'm kind of happier without it, to be honest. Sometimes comic strips illustrate the hardest, best truths that we need to know. I don't know if some of you know the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin and Hobbes is a comic strip that follows an adventurous and mischievous little boy and his stuffed tiger named Hobbes that he actually imagines as being alive with him. So the, uh, the comic strip uh, artist draws Hobbes as a living tiger who walks and talks and plays with Calvin, whatever he's doing. Hobbes the tiger, ironically, is much more sane than Calvin the little boy. There's a single panel of the comic strip of Calvin and Hobbes that shows Hobbes the tiger leaning against a rock with his arms crossed, kind of minding his own business. And then there's the little boy Calvin laying on the ground, looking exhausted with his hand on his forehead, and Calvin says, reality continues to ruin my life. See, our preacher king in Ecclesiastes wants to teach us something but he has to start by giving us a big dose of reality. By starting to strip away from us our ideas that we're actually somebody of importance in history, that we're going to finally find that new thing or that new experience that will satisfy us, or that anyone 100 years from now will even know the slightest bit about who we were. And if you're like me, it's uncomfortable to be stripped of those ideas. I kind of feel bare. Life is no doubt a frustrating mystery. It's vanity. But hang on, it's got to get a little worse before it gets better. And that brings us to point two this afternoon, life's pursuits end in death. See, I told you, life's pursuits end in death. And that's covering chapter 1, verse 12, all the way through chapter 2, verse 23. The preacher of Ecclesiastes begins to tell the story of how he explored all the possible pursuits that might bring lasting satisfaction to a person. And he did it using the wisdom that God had given him as a gift. So if we think of Solomon being this preacher king, we should remember that when Solomon took the throne of his father King David, God spoke to him and asked Solomon, ask what I shall give you. I mean, it was like God said, what do you want? I'll give it to you. Just ask me. Well, in 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 9, Solomon says, give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. Well, God was so pleased with that request from Solomon that he gave him unparalleled wisdom and not only that God said you know what I'm so pleased that you didn't ask for riches nor did you ask for victory over your enemies so I'm going to give those to you as well and so that's all of what Solomon got he gave him riches beyond compare as well as peace in his time and so the preacher king of Ecclesiastes says in verse 12 that he set out to search out wisdom by wisdom, all that is under heaven. But he tells us his conclusion before he chronicles his explorations. And of course, you guessed it. It's in verse 14. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. You, you, you can't get it. But then he tells us, first, he harnessed his wisdom to explore and analyze wisdom, madness, and folly. And so in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, the preacher king decides to test himself with the pursuit of pleasure. He explored pleasure, partaking of all the wine that he wanted to partake of. He explored comedy and humor. He wanted to see if laughter was indeed the best medicine. But the preacher king found that it was lacking in any ultimate value. And then in verses 4 through 9, he explores the benefits of building things and acquiring possessions. I mean, he made incredible works and projects. He planted vineyards, gardens, parks, created pools to water the forest that he'd built. He had male and female slaves, herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me, he says. He had silver and gold, all that he wanted. You should know that in 1 Kings... The account of Solomon's reign it says that everything even ordinary vessels in Solomon's court were made of gold nothing was made of silver because silver was kind of like we treat plastic it was kind of it's kind of worthless he had singers and he had concubines without number and by concubines he doesn't just mean female servants He didn't deny himself any pleasure or any project, and the result is in 2 verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He had all the pleasure he wanted, he had all the sex he wanted with whoever he wanted, so much gold and silver that it became ordinary, so many projects accomplished that he basically couldn't count them all. He had everything in excess, And it just didn't satisfy. And he thought to himself, how can I use my wisdom and weigh up and consider all that I've done and tried? And so in verse 13, he recognizes that wisdom is a good thing. It's better than folly. But there's a problem. And that's in verse 14. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool is going to happen to me as well. He says, hey, take a look at the end. The end is the same for the fool and the wise man. Let me reference another Calvin and Hobbes comic. In this one, the little boy Calvin is in a wagon with Hobbes, the tiger, behind him, and they're holding on for dear life as the wagon flies down this steep hill. Hobbes the tiger is leaning back in fear. Calvin's hair is wild and crazy in the wind, and none of the wheels are on the ground. You can't see where they're going. They clearly don't know where they're going, and Calvin yells to Hobbes the tiger, the truth is, most of us discover where we're heading when we arrive. It's true, isn't it? Most people aren't thinking about the ultimate destination that's absolutely guaranteed for everyone. And I don't mean where they're headed in their jobs or their families or their friendships. I mean that we're all headed to the grave. That's where we're going. We're all going to die. Death is the great equalizer. Death is the ultimate statistic. One out of one die. The preacher king is using his own experience of exploring those different pursuits in life, to argue that wisdom and pleasure and work and sex and possessions, those pursuits are are like these bubbles that we keep ourselves in. To, To keep ourselves from facing the reality of death. We work hard at all those pursuits. And the preacher is using this reality of death like a sharp needle to pop that bubble, whatever it is for you, And he knows because he's tried them all. The famous Roman Catholic philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal wrote, As men have not been able to cure death, misery, or ignorance, they have taken to not thinking about them so as to become happy. So then from verse 18 down to 23, the preacher of Ecclesiastes laments that the certainty of death in this life means that no matter how much he accomplishes or gains, it's all going to end up in someone else's hands. And that someone might just be a fool, someone who doesn't deserve it, someone who used it in the wrong way, maybe even. And of course, these verses 18 through 23, they're littered with references to his toil, to his labors, to his striving. And it drives him to a hatred of his work in verse 18, despair in verse 20, sorrow in verse 23, vanity, vanity, vanity. It's all vanity. You know, that repeated use of toil and striving and all the hardship that it brings, it should remind us of where those things came into the world. They came into the world in Genesis chapter 3. There wasn't toil and striving and hardship, despair and hatred and sorrow in Genesis 1 and 2, but mankind sinned and it came into the world. Life has become a frustrating mystery because of sin. Life has become chaotic and unpredictable because of sin. Sin has thrown everything off. Sin has turned everything upside down. And there's only one person who can turn it right side up and remove the mystery and dispel the frustration. And so the preacher king wants to teach us finally in verses 24 through 26 of chapter 2 That life lived well comes by pleasing Christ and enjoying His gifts. Life lived well comes by pleasing Christ and enjoying His gifts. That's the third point. So throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, the author is wearing us down with long stretches of descriptions about vanity and frustrations, but then he's going to use these few verses to bring us a little relief. It's kind of like a little air. You know, you can come up to the surface, (gasps) take some air, and these little brief stretches of Verses of some kind of hope and meaning. They're they're fewer in number throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, but in making them shorter and briefer, he's drawing our attention to them. We'll cling to them when we get to them. And in these verses 24 through 26, there's a turn in his thinking, a new thought. All that discouraging thinking has eventually exposed what might be the solution for the preacher king and for us. Somehow he sees God above it all, and he sees his hand is in it all. He says in verse 24, this also I saw is from the hand of God. He's been looking for meaning and permanence in the things of this world when really the only truly meaningful and permanent thing is is not something, it's not an accomplishment, it's not an experience, but it's a a someone. Only God gives meaning. Only God is permanent. The preacher King recognizes that he's been looking for meaning and fulfillment in the gifts that God gives rather than in God Himself. You know, if we look... For fulfillment in God's gifts, rather than God, we are going to be sorely disappointed. Maybe not initially, but it's going to wear off. I promise you. But if we enjoy the gifts for what they are, just gifts, and we look for true fulfillment in the gift giver, we'll be free to enjoy life even as death is racing toward us. Enjoying God's gifts as simply gifts and not our God's, you know what? It can look kind of similar in people's lives. One group of people sitting at a table, enjoying a meal together, laughing. Another group of people sitting at a table together, enjoying one another, laughing. It kind of looks the same, and yet maybe they're worlds apart. Think of it this way. One way of approaching life says, eat drink, and be merry because that's all there is. But there's another way of thinking about life that says, eat, drink, and be merry because God is good and He's given these these things to us, His children. Isn't He wonderful? Isn't He wonderful? You know, I'm reminded of the first question and answer in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a teaching tool to teach the big truths of the whole Bible. And it's the first question, so it's a really important one. The question is, what is the chief purpose of man? And the answer is, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Kind of sounds like the author of Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? Or the Preacher King. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Twice in this final verse, he mentions those who please God. And then in verse 24, he says, this also I saw is from the hand of God. You know, the preacher king of Ecclesiastes, knew God as the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God who had chosen Abraham, who had rescued Israel from Egypt by the leadership of Moses, who had brought them into the promised land through the leadership of Joshua and had given them a wonderful leader in King David who had a heart for God. But that very same God we know as Jesus Christ. Christ has sent Jesus Christ, His Son, into the world to solve the problem of life being a frustrating mystery that ends in death. We know God the Father through Jesus Christ. And we can only begin to please God by obeying Christ and His gospel. Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so, we repent of our sin, and we believe in Him. That's the first step towards pleasing God. That's what it means to become a Christian. That's what it means to keep being a Christian. Have you taken that step? Or have you only sought the gifts that God gives? Maybe you're chasing after one of those pursuits that the preacher king set his life to earlier in the passage. When will you finally turn to the gift giver in faith? Rather than chasing after all those gifts as an end in and of themselves. Or maybe if you're a Christian already, have you lost sight of the gift giver that you pledged your life to sometime back in time? Have you gotten caught up in pursuing meaning and gain only in his gifts? Which one of the pursuits of the preacher king is distracting you from Christ, the giver of all the gifts? Which one? Why would you chase after those things when you can know the gift giver, the one from whom all meaning flows? Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? The preacher king of Ecclesiastes is considering that question. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? and yet forfeit his soul. Jesus went to the cross to die so that death could be defeated. So that it would have no hold on us, no grip on us, no sting for us who trust in Christ. So live to please him and enjoy his gifts just as that. Simply gifts from a gracious and glorious gift giver. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You that You are the giver of all good things. We praise You that before anything existed, You existed. And from You flows meaning and purpose and satisfaction. Lord, we pray. We pray that we would be people that seek to please You. And enjoy your gifts as just that, just gifts. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this afternoon, we are going to uh, take part in the Lord's Supper. I know we're running a little bit late, but we're going to continue with the Lord's Supper anyway.